thank you. Thanks very much, Peter. That was uh, very generous. Um, yeah, so um, I think uh, David, who's following me, and myself are probably going to take it in a slightly more intellectual, elevated direction away from the day-to-day -day -day thrust of politics here, but to just ask some broader questions. Uh, and in this case, I'm going to be talking about the question of ethnic change and wanting to foreground that question. Um, because I want to make the case really that this is the most important reason for resisting large-scale mass immigration, is to slow down the rate of ethnic change in Britain. And this is a similar problem in other Western countries. Because even those who talk about immigration in politics, it seems to me, generally try and couch their arguments in terms of pressure on public services, on house prices, overcrowding, uh, security, or even as with Brexit, safeguarding political sovereignty. And I mean, those are important things, but I think they are not the main driver of this issue and the main driver of why we need to be concerned about large-scale immigration. Because someone can always come back and say, oh, we'll build more houses, uh, we'll increase density, uh, we can sort of do a better job on uh, building schools and so on. I mean, there are always answers that directly address these other material concerns. And indeed, in fact, if we look at the main body of academic research on immigration opinion, people who want less immigration largely want less immigration for cultural and psychological reasons. Not because they are poor or rather than rich. Not because they've lost a job or are unemployed. These are not the reasons that people want less immigration. It is primarily about culture and psychology. And so raising this as continually raising this as an issue only of public services and mainly about uh, pressure on public services or uh, talking about security concerns or so on is, is in my view done largely to avoid the charge of racism. And so you're giving in to the people who are continually leveling this dishonest charge at anybody who is concerned about the pace of cultural change in the country in order to have a quote-unquote respectable reason for restricting immigration, it's always an economic one. And I think that conversation needs to change. And I think even I would fault Brexit, which was rationalized not on the Essentially, people voted for Brexit to lower immigration. It was couched as a sort of sovereignty issue, and therefore an elite could hijack the Brexit project and say, yeah, we're, we're going to do sovereignty, we're going to do a global Britain here, and we're going to make Britain global instead of European. And they actually took over the Brexit project, and we saw immigration shoot up now to 600,000 net. So what happened there is that you saw, you saw majority anxiety, ethnic majority anxiety in particular, deflected away from immigration towards free trade and other economic and political projects that were more congenial to the economic, or not the economic, but to the elite, uh, progress, progressive or neoliberal elite. And just to sort of give you an idea, by the way, about the nature of public opinion on immigration. You know, I, I've asked, in 2016, I asked in a survey of Brexit supporters, how important is pressure on public services to you as an issue with 100 being super important and zero not being very important? I got about a 50, sort of a middling issue. You just have to drop two words in there, immigration putting pressure on public services, it goes to 75 out of 100. Clearly, pressure on public services is not the driver of concern on immigration. You can ask the same of Trump supporters, how much is urban sprawl a problem? 
middling issue, about 50 out of 100. You say immigration, fueling urban sprawl, it goes up to 75 out of 100. Or, in fact, if I can get this rolling here, um, we'll see if this works. Here's a question in 2018 I asked on a survey, and I just want you to focus on the, on the top bit before the underlined parts, right? So you've got two choices here. This was 2018, so 275,000 was net migration in 2018. That was, seemed like a big number then. It doesn't seem like a big number anymore. But in 2018, your choice is keep it at 275,000, but you can actually increase the skilled share. If you keep it at a high level of 275, you can increase the skilled share from 40 to 50%. Now, if you want to reduce immigration from 275 to 125, um, you're going to see a lowering of the skill share. So do you want high skill, high immigration, or low skill with low numbers? And people kind of broke pretty evenly on that question. But once you placed down here a caveat, and you said, okay, well, if you're going to ha go for high immigration with high skill, the white British share of the UK population is going to decline more quickly, from 80% down to 58% by 2060. This is approximately, roughly, the number. If, however, you go for decline, it's, that white British share is still going to decline because of age structure. A lot of this is built in, but it'll decline from 80 to 65%. Adding in that information makes an absolutely massive difference to what people responded. So if we just had the information about the numbers and the proportion skilled, you got 54% opting for a reduction. But once you put in the information about the ethnic shift in the population being faster with larger numbers, even with high skill, people move very quickly, 75% for the reduction. And that's just an example of what I'm talking about, that when that ethnocultural change is really made manifest to people because people don't necessarily notice this on a daily basis. But of course there's a compound effect of migration year after year after year. If it's 600 and 600 and 600 every year, that leads to very rapid changes. Um, then actually people, when they're thinking in these terms, become very restrictionist. And there have been other academic experiments that have shown exactly the same result. So it's culture and psychology essentially driving immigration restriction of sentiment. And the immigration issue in, in also reminds people of loss of the familiar, loss of the country they've known, loss of social cohesion. Um, but as I mentioned, like compound interest, you know, you can take the United States, it had about a half a million people crossing the border annually from 1970 to 2000 or thereabouts. The Hispanic share of the population increases from several percent in 1970 to overtake the African-American share of the population, around 13% by the early 2000s. And that's just an illustration of what this compounding does. Uh, we've seen that to some extent in this country as well. London was about 88% white British in 1971 in the census. It's down to about 38% in the most recent census. That's, an, again, an example of this compound effect. And we're going to see that, and maybe David Coleman will touch on that. We're going to see what happened in London happening within Britain as a whole as we move towards the second half of this century. Um, now, I would argue that this matters greatly. This is, in, in a way, the foundational issue. And worrying about it is not racist. Uh, and that, that's a critical point. And I, I just want, I think people need to become a bit more confident in understanding why this is the case and defending more forthrightly 
the cultural arguments for reducing immigration. And so the first thing, first thing I want to point out is ethnicity, which refers to a subjective belief in being part of a community of common ancestry. That's what ethnicity is. Um, now, ethnic groups are also identifiable by certain exterior markers, such as language, religion, and physical appearance. However, those markers can blur over time. So physical appearance can start to blur over time with intermarriage. And, and that gets to the point that ethnic groups have uh, ethnic boundaries, but they're not hermetically sealed. They can absorb through a melting process, through assimilation. Uh, and so we have Huguenots, Jews, Irish, and also black people who have melted into what is the ethnic English uh, group, for example. But the point is that this process doesn't happen in 10, 20 years. It takes many generations, not many generations, but it takes multiple generations. So in the case of the United States, for example, the uh, immigrants from Europe, from places like Poland, Italy, uh, and Russia, it took three or four generations for those groups to start intermarrying and more or less to lose their ethnicities, to move out of their ethnic areas, sort of somewhere between 1900 and 1980. We're looking at sort of 70, 80 years for that process to occur. I don't think we should kid ourselves that it's going to be faster in Britain. And so what we need to think about then is an optimal level of diversity in the society that balances out increases in diversity, diversification through immigration, and decreases in diversity through assimilation, and deep assimilation through intermarriage and identity change towards the majority group. Now, it is the case that currently um, white physical appearance is a marker of ethnic Englishness. This is likely to blur over time, as I mentioned, with intermarriage, but again, that's going to take time too. These things take, as I said in the US case, it took a few generations. Um, now, what about British national identity? That's the political territorial identity of the entire islands. Uh, and now that is fully inclusive of everybody, no matter where you're from, when you arrived. Uh, and in fact, most, you know, almost all British people would say you don't have to be white to be British. That's only a few percentage who would, who would insist on that. However, even when we're talking about the wider British national identity, uh, again, academic research shows quite clearly that nations with sizable and secure ethnic majorities have done better economically and politically than those who do not have significant ethnic majorities. And Eastern, well, East Asia, Western Europe, where you have uh, overwhelming ethnic majorities, have developed in a more successful and stable way than places, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, where countries are much more diverse than they are, for example, in East Asia or Western Europe. Uh, that's been a problem because politics runs on ethnic lines. It's always a fight as to who's going to get the road, the hospital, or the school, um, and the welfare spending. And so these countries, it's harder for them to provide public goods. There's a literature on this that's just pretty established and actually not that contested, really. Um, in a highly diverse society, such as uh, Liberia or Kenya or Guyana, it's just much harder to organize politics because voting tends to run on ethnic lines. So in those truly deeply multi-ethnic societies, it's harder. It's not impossible. You're not necessarily going to degenerate into war, but it's just harder and it's less successful. The other thing I should say is countries that are transitioning, like the Western countries, from more, greater homogeneity to greater diversity seem to be going through a process of polarization because a small group of people tend to enjoy the change and the diversity, and a larger group of people tend to think of diversity as disorderly and the change is lost. 
they prefer greater stability and continuity. And so as Britain becomes more diverse, as any Western country becomes more diverse, you get these opposite responses to the diversity, and that breaks the politics along ideological lines into so-called globalist versus nationalist. So you get a, the beginnings of polarization. Then you get the uh, more globalist or cosmopolitan side that likes the change in diversity, accusing anybody who doesn't like it of being a bigot and a racist. And that generates resentment and a culture war. So we've got this different response to diversity overlaid by the culture war, driving polarization in country after country. So progressives, of course, will make the farcical claim that you know, any concession to people who want slower uh, represents a, a slippery slope to wanting to expel people and deport long-standing citizens. This is completely dishonest alarmism, and we've got to call it out. I mean, we've got to be much more forthright and say, no, it isn't a sort of black and white world where you're either closed or you're open. You can want it slower or faster. But wanting it slower is completely legitimate. We don't have to think in these binary terms. Because actually, this also gets at confronting the dishonest definition of racism that is used repeatedly by the open borders or even by the mass immigration lobby. So let's look at this term racism. What does it actually mean what is its definition? Well, the reality is that racism refers to a feeling of superiority to or hatred of particular racial groups or a desire for race purity. And yet, however, if we again look at the psychological research, it shows very clearly that hatred of other groups and attachment to your own group are not correlated dispositions. If I like my family more, it doesn't make me hate the family next door more, except in very rare situations such as war. So, but somehow, it's always the case that these two things are conflated. Attachment to your own group, hatred of the other group, squashed together so that any expression of attachment to any ethnic, ethnocultural state of affairs represents racism, but only, of course, for members of the majority group. If, if say, uh, Chinese in Britain want to see more Chinese coming into Britain, that would not be called racism. And actually, it isn't racism, but it would be called fine, whereas if majorities want less immigration in order to sort of uh, slow down the rate of change to their group, then that somehow is racism. It doesn't make any logical sense, and yet people are falling for it. And I, it strikes me that a lot of conservatives do not know the arguments. They bend to that argument and instead try and make these material arguments for um, immigration restriction. So the problem then here is we have um, yeah, the other thing I should say is that the changing ethnic composition of Britain is something that is not just uh, of concern to ethnic majority British people. What we're seeing in a lot of the survey results is that many minorities, ethnic minorities, not just majorities, are attached to the particular ethnic composition of the country that they are in. They want to preserve, to some, to some extent, the country they know and grew up in. So I'll just give you a couple examples. Um, we've seen American surveys of Hispanic and Asian Trump voters. And, and of course, 30 to 40% now of Hispanics and Asians are voting for the Republican Party. Hispanic and Asian Trump voters are as likely as white Trump voters to support statesmen such as, quote, it is important to preserve and protect America's white European heritage. Same share of Hispanic and Asian Trump voters are agreeing with that statement as white Trump voters. In Canada, where I'm from uh, originally, 
There have been surveys on immigration that show that non-white Canadians are more likely than white Canadians to say there are too many non-Europeans in the immigration flow in Canada. So are these voters being racist against themselves? I mean, that is a sort of conclusion that we should draw from progressive rhetoric. Uh, no, but they would prefer cultural stability and, and slower change. Um, so I guess just to, to, to sort of end up here, I, in short, I think it's time to be more open and openly make the cultural case against mass immigration. That by accelerating ethnic change, you divide a country and you create polarization. And we need more time to assimilate the diversity we have because it takes generations and no integration policy has been successful, has been shown to, it can be a multicultural one, it can be the French Republican model. None of it has done anything to ethnic residential segregation, for example. There are simply very few to zero um, examples of these successful integration policies. It has to happen organically in a way, and that can only happen with time. So we need time to assimilate the diversity we have before we embark on further ethnic change. Thank you. Thank you very, very much indeed, Eric. Um, we have some questions already. Um, Thank you. Uh, thank you, Eric. Um, I just want to question your concept of ethnic. I just can't make it make sense, uh, other than if you mean it instead of saying race, because you don't want to say race. I mean, I notice you say white British, but then you say ethnic grouping. So if you mean race, then why not say race? Because I think if you look at things in terms of race or ethnicity, I don't know any Brits or indeed many people on the panels today who are actually of, of an, a particular ethnic group. Everybody is mixed, including, as far as I understand it, yourself. So, <laughs> and yet we are able to have these conversations that are forward-looking, but the problem with when you talk about ethnicity, it seems to draw on uh, a backward-looking uh, perspective, which I, I'm not convinced that that really gets us anywhere. Because, um, you know, Brits... And as far as there are people, I, mean, I'm, I am a Brit, but my Britishness is constituted of Irishness, Scottishness, Welshness. And none of those parts of me would agree with each other if I looked back into the different generations of my family, but yet they managed to synthesise in me. But the thing that is more important about me is what I'm understanding uh, to be the sort of what's necessary for us to move forwards. So my ethnicity, I think, is, is irrelevant to those questions. Yeah, just a couple answers to you on race and ethnicity first. I mean, race being a sort of much larger category. So, you know, white, for example, would encompass, you know, Polish, Irish, Italian, all these other groups, as well as, say, ethnic English. If we're talking about England, for example. So uh, race is a sort of larger concept. It's also a marker between, you know, it's a, it's a marker between groups between groups that are white and those who are non-white. I've argued that's going to blur over time through intermarriage, but... Actually, if we look historically, I mean, these myths of origin and, and, and the past really does matter to people. I mean, if you look at surveys of, uh, you know, white Americans, white British, white Canadians, um, you know, that majority ethnicity matters to about 45 to 65 percent of people to a greater or lesser extent. I do think it is important. Um, and I do think, you know, it depends. I'm not sure about your particular case. Um, but people do have these attachments. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a more important thing 
than their attachment to Britain, right? So you can, you can be English and British, you can be Scottish and British, um, but I think the, the historical record would, would at least suggest to me that when you get a very multi-ethnic uh, society with different myths of origin in the population, that is not going to be as easy politically uh, as when you have an ethnic majority. And again, I said an assimilative, assimilative ethnic majority that's united by collective memories, myths about heroes going back into the past, ancestry, yes. The other thing is it's not 100% of your ancestors. It all, it, all it has to be is one line of descent. Um, you know, it's well known the Jews, for example, there's a, a maternal line, but there's all, also lots of different DNA coming in from many different places, and it's about what you choose to identify with. So I would say I do think it's important, but it may not be as important as the national identity, but I think to try and say it doesn't matter, the ethnic composition doesn't matter, I think that's, that's wrong, and I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to go there. Um, I think actually it's... And, and the other thing I would say is there's an extent to which even national identity, even whatever is in your mind about what it means to be English, if, if that's how you're identifying nationally, uh, does contain implicit ethnic elements to some degree. And we can debate how important those are, but I think that is an important part of the picture. So I wouldn't... I, I guess I, what I'm saying is I think ethnicity and ethnic composition does matter. Is it on? Yes, sorry. Um, you, you've forgotten the um, commercial, so um, as you know, I'm sure some will be interested, can you tell us about the courses you're offering at the University <laughs> of Buckingham? And I'll, I'll take my cut later. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll pay you later. Um, yeah, well... <laughs> So those of you who, I think it was just mentioned by Peter, but I, I've been at uh, Birkbeck for 20 years, and you know, many of you know that in, in mainstream universities, we just can't have open conversations about hot-button issues, which most of which happen to be some of the most important issues. Um, so yeah, I'm just at the point in my career, I said, screw it, I'm going to go off, and, and uh, Buckingham's the only place that might, this might run, and I'm going to try and set up a course on Woke, which I'm doing an online course. Um, and yeah, I encourage everybody to check it out. If you go to my Twitter feed, there's a pinned tweet there and you can express interest. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to get a conversation going. We've got tens of thousands of papers on the populist right, which I've contributed to that literature. It's important to study the populist right. We also need to study the woke left and that's not happening because it's too uncomfortable for academics and to do that. Yeah, anybody can apply. Uh, absolutely, this, this is, there's sort of two levels. One is just the lecture series, 15 weeks. Um, the other is if you want to do a seminar, which is going to be considerably more. Um, so you just have to indicate which option you're interested in. We're trying to change higher education. You know, uh, it's, it's a small start, but hopefully will lead. Maybe it can have some positive effect on the wider sector, but I'm skeptical because it's just too captured. <laughs> Thanks. Hello, if you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission.